made for autistic people, parents and carers of kids on the autism spectrum. This is a different brilliant with Orion Kelly. No two autistic people are the same. Open conversations that inform and engage a better place for autistic An aspect people. podcast focusing on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Welcome to a different brilliant. Thank you so much for listening to the debut episode of A Different Brilliant. I'm your host, Orion Kelly, and I'm autistic. A Different Brilliant is an aspect podcast made for autistic adults and parents or carers of kids on the autism spectrum. My purpose is to inspire, inform, and entertain you through focusing on the strengths, interests, and aspirations of the autistic community. And if you're not autistic, but open to learning more about autism, well, you've come to the right place. A Different Brilliant with Orion Kelly. On this episode, we explore the topic of strengths and interests. We discuss the models we use to identify and understand autism. My guest is Dr. Tom Tutton. Tom is a clinical psychologist and the national manager of Aspect Practice. Tom, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. It's really good to be able to talk to you again. By the way, can I say, Tom, as one of the executive producers of this show with Lisa Cassidy, uh, thank you for this amazing opportunity. This is our very first episode of A Different Brilliant, and thank you so much for giving me the chance to put my gift to work and make a difference for the autistic community. I really do appreciate you and the team at Aspect giving me this opportunity, so thank you. Uh, and, and thank you again. You know, it's really good to be able to start on such a topic like strengths. It's such a positive way to start, and I think to have your input since your diagnosis as well, I think it's just going to add another layer of expertise and brilliance, hopefully, to, to what gets produced over all of the podcasts. So let's break this down. I'd love you to talk us through, to unpack the various ways and models that we've traditionally viewed and assessed autism. So look, probably the simplest way of thinking about this is that there are a couple of key models that informs people's thinking about autism. And we often try and talk about these in our workshops because I think it really frames a lot of how you then think about understanding and supporting autistic people. The first model is the deficit model, sometimes linked to the medical model of autism. And that really labels autism as a disorder. So that's that ASD, the D is the disorder. And when you look at the descriptive terms that come around how people think about autism, you hear words like abnormal and deficit and difficulty. You know, it only looks at the things that are problematic and it assumes that the problem is based inside that person. So, you know, then obviously what follows from that is all of the therapies work to try and change that person and they try and alleviate what they perceive as the deficit and that's a big problem and we'll talk a little bit perhaps more about that but still I think this model is prevalent in in lots of settings and even a little while ago we looked at at a paper that reviewed research around autism and it found that 50% of the research that happens currently only focuses on deficits whereas 11% actually looks primarily at strength. So you can see the balance is primarily around this sort of deficit model of autism. The flip 
side of this. And I think the model, hopefully, that people are moving more and more to is called the social model of autism. And that acknowledges that there are disabling elements of autism, but what it does is actually shows how people interact with their environment, that often the disabling elements of autism come because of the environment around people and the lack of understanding of people who engage. And a good way of just thinking about this is just think about somebody who uses a wheelchair. So it's quite reasonable to suggest that your legs not working is a disability, but really what's disabling is having a world that doesn't allow you to get up some steps, that doesn't provide you the lifts, the ramps, the doorways, the things that need to be your level to function and to function really well. And I think this is the way we want to think about autism is, yes, we want people to develop their own skills and their own behaviors, whatever it is that's going to help them. But it's really important that we see that in terms of the context of the interactions with other people and the environment around. We want to make sure that we're thinking about the barriers that are out and about in the world, addressing these, reducing the things that cause people such distress, and that hopefully from that, good things will flow. You know, and this is really why Aspect has chosen that phrase, a different brilliant, to think about autism, hopefully driving people more away from deficit and into thinking about strengths and the social model. And let's be clear, Tom, anyone will tell you that I'm brilliant, okay? <laughs> uh, but to, to give you um, a real-life example, and I totally agree, for example, we provide ramps like it's nothing, but you know, for an autistic person to get a, an environment in a workplace or in, in education that is conducive yeah. to them, it's almost bloody impossible. And here's an example of the social model. So, as you know, we've talked about me studying at uni and the, yeah. un, the university, acknowledging that I'm autistic, said, okay, Orion, so when you have exams, you're going to be in a different room that's quiet, that has no people yeah. around, and in the exams you'll have breaks and you get longer answering time because of processing. So that's an example yeah. of them going, instead of sitting an exam like a neurotypical person, tough luck, it's your problem. Yeah. They're going, you know, you have a, a disability, we will help you providing an environment conducive to you. And I'm very grateful, you know, Monash Uni have that disability support yeah. services. So there's an example of where I'm being provided a ramp. I think that's a great example to highlight, you know, there are yeah. things in the world that actually can provide that. And it's so beneficial when organisations yeah. like my uni do it. That's right. And I think sometimes people call the kind of accommodations that you describe cognitive ramps. So it's, it's trying to help people see that what would benefit somebody who uses a wheelchair, there are a set of accommodations that will work for a broad range of autistic people too. It's just sometimes harder to see. So it's great that you're able to describe so clearly what worked for you in that situation at university. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the problematic nature of the deficit model. Do you want to talk to yeah. us about why you believe it's problematic? I mean, I think just from the beginning, it, it doesn't describe a human being well. In no other part of the world do we introduce people by a list of their deficits and problems. And I think what happens is that when you describe people that way, low expectations lead to poor outcomes. So it develops a set of supports that really don't help autistic people reach their full potential. Just picking an example, thinking about what the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual would describe as highly restricted, fixated interests that are normal or intensity or focus. So that's the passions that autistic people have. If you frame them as being problematic, what has happened in the past is people try to remove them. They see them as problems. And there was a study from Pat Howlin back in 2009 that looked at 137 adults who had a savant skill. So this is skills way and above the sorts of things that I would be capable of doing. And of that 
group, only five of those people actually found employment using their skill. Yeah. We're missing the potential that people have and not kind of finding the niches for people to succeed. And what happened, we've also looked at some more of the research and a study of lots of autistic adults. I think it was nearly 100 autistic adults found that whereas perhaps half of their parent group had acknowledged and supported their passions and interests, only 10% of teachers were able to incorporate that in a meaningful way in a school setting. And you can see again how we know autistic people are they have strengths, they have really good interests. It makes sense to capitalize on these things, but it, it doesn't happen because of that sort of the deficit model. I think one of the other things is, again, it means that therapies are oriented to fixing autistic people rather than actually thinking about the world around them. And one of the big pieces of work that we do, and I know that you'll talk about in the podcast, is about thinking about an autism friend in Australia. Yeah. Can we reduce, adapt the environment around people to try and diminish the disabling impacts, for example, of the sensory environment or something like that. So you can see it's a very limited model. It's a very problematic model. And really, I think it leads to poor outcomes for people. And, you know, what it also leads to mental health issues. For me personally, yeah. if someone's going to say, I'm different to the point of I'm not accepting you, yes. that contributes to anxiety and depression. I can tell you personally, not being accepted or feeling like I belong to the world I live in it, yeah, it has a real impact. So, yeah, as you say, there's just so many areas of it that are just unacceptable going yeah. forward. And let's reverse it. So, what are the benefits of the strengths and interest-based approach for autistic people? And I know you, yeah. I know you've got plenty of stories and case studies to help us. Yeah, out. and look, I think you know what's important for me that you know Aspect has a, a research center that really tries to create much more positive view and collect positive kind of research around autism. We've been, been collecting little bits of of research around the strengths-based approach and some of the benefits. And actually, it's really huge, partly for autistic folks. Like, it builds their happiness. Obviously, if you're, if you're capitalizing on their strengths, if you're engaging in their interests, it makes sense that you have happier people. It can connect people. So people with shared passions often connect very well. It can improve people's communication so people are more motivated and more capable about speaking around the passions that they have with other people. It really helps to boost things like motivation. So it boosts a person's kind of internal motivation. If I have a lesson at school on Star Wars that's related around Star Wars, and that's my passion, I'm going to be there for it. I'm going to be switched on. I'm going to be listening. And I'm going to be understanding and engaging. That sort of stuff makes so much sense. It can really help, obviously, in other educational settings and with work. So rather, perhaps, that people try and slot into a job that doesn't suit them very well, if you can find work for autistic folks that really builds on their passions, builds on their strength, as we saw, I think, with the Employable Me program, it can really help people find those little niches of employment that work so well. I think it improves people's self-confidence. Again, I think you've talked about that sort of the mental health side of things as well. But outside of that, you know, some of the studies that we've looked at show that it helps parents be more optimistic about the future of their kids because they can see strengths. They can see how these passions might grow. And it actually builds affection with kids as well. And I think that's really important. That's, again, we, we don't operate in a bubble. We actually think about the context of people with families and friends and communities. You know, I think that's why it can be very confronting for parents when they're planning, let's say, an NDIS planning meeting. All they're really asked to provide is everything wrong. Yeah. Everything wrong yeah. with their child. And it can be a very confronting experience. And I think it can affect the mental health of, of parents as well. And that's why embracing the strengths and interests is such a great way forward and something we really need to embrace. Now, 
I'd love you to talk us through the the four-step process to help people take a strengths and interest-based approach. And look, I think, you know, what I wanted to really say about this approach primarily is it doesn't ignore difficulties. It isn't a kind of living in la-la land, let's all just be positive, but it is about assessing and finding people's strengths, and everybody has a strength. So in our process, typically that we try and go through, the first step is just about assessment. And I think probably... Because of that, that, that deficit model has been the predominant model, we haven't been as good at assessing a person's strengths as we should be. You know, and I, I actually look back to probably five years ago when I was working with somebody, and I remember writing in, you know, in a plan that, that you know, it was pretty much they were very active and they had a nice smile. That was the best I could come up with because I wasn't able to think about their strengths. Autistic people have lots of strengths. I think having a sense of what they are helps you then to look for different things. So, you know, memory for facts and figures, that skill around visual perception or processing, the aptitude for technology, the attention to detail. I think you've mentioned kind of humor, people's kind of a sense of being fair and just, the expertise that come with the interest that people have, sometimes logical thinking or even thinking differently about the world is amazing. Some of the focus that comes with autism or just that ability to persist and do things again and again, you know, once you get a sense of what the strengths are, it's easier to see these strengths in the individuals that, that you might know. And we often give our participants in the workshop that we run kind of an, an assessment activity and a whole list of questions which all help them understand where they might see strengths or where they might kind of um, be able to assess the interests of the people that they're supporting. The second step is then just about essentially setting a goal. So ideally working with that person, you know, what is it that they would like to achieve? And then obviously sometimes we work with families and teachers as well to set the goal. But I just think sometimes having a clarity about exactly what do you want from an approach, setting a goal and working towards the goal is really important. So we do a bit of work around um, teaching people about um, what they call smart goals, you know, having a clear vision and then making sure that you can move towards that and review and, and, and continue to improve. The third section is really just about then getting creative. Once you have an idea of what people's strengths and interests are, and once you have a goal, it's just about how can we use their interests and weave it into the areas that are really important to help build their motivation, to help build their success and, and, and their self-esteem. And we do a lot, which I think is really interesting, with schools. I think, you know, one of the issues for schools is that they worry about the curriculum. Obviously, all schools have curriculum goals that they have to meet. But when I've been talking to a number of our teachers through our school system, it's really clear that you can run a lesson, for example, on Minecraft, and you can really engage a bunch of kids who love this. And it's really easy to meet a range of curriculum goals through something like Minecraft. I think it's just a sense of having the confidence and the creativity to know how to do it. And that might be something as varied as the life cycle of a chicken. It might be something to do with art. It might be something to do with geology and rocks and geography. Whatever it is, I think it's just about that creativity. And sometimes that means that you have to sort of dive into that passion that you're students might have to be able to then work out how you can use a person's strengths and interests to really sort of boost their their progress towards the goal. Absolutely. And then the last little step, step four is just implementing it, putting into practice every day, every day, every day, and making sure it's just woven into that fabric of, of what they experience. Sometimes I think people set a goal and they have a good idea, but it gets lost and doesn't, it just doesn't get rehearsed or practiced enough. So the idea is just, yeah, we implement, 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 once you meet the goal, start the process again. Now, I'd love to get your view on the current orthodoxy. What model do you think 
is the most used model across the medical landscape as we sit and, and with, with regards to deficit versus strengths? I mean, I'd say probably the deficit model is, is probably the most widely thought about, yeah. um, particularly, obviously, in more kind of healthcare settings. Why? And I imagine why, why is it? In, in educational settings. It's a good question. I think, again, primarily because we think and talk about autism in terms of the DSM version diagnosis. Yeah. So you'll see, you know, when many people present about autism, they start saying autism is a disability found by deficits in X, Y, and Z. That diagnostic bit leads how we describe a human being. And actually, you know, I don't think that's right. I don't think we talk about human, we should talk about human beings in terms of their diagnosis. I think the other thing that obviously has happened is that we've excluded autistic people from the conversation around how they ought to be described. And that and then allows these models to sort of take shape and take hold in other areas. Yeah. It's obviously frustrating looking in because that doesn't help us in any way. The perpetuating of that myth of, of model of yeah. care is obviously very frustrating. And also, from my day-to-day dealings, I, I'm since diagnosis with the wider community, I'm very concerned that there seems to be a belief the best thing that we can do as a community for an autistic person like me or my, my six-year-old son is to provide them with therapies and resources so they can come across normal or neurotypical, as in, you know, tools to not be themselves with friends, partners, work colleagues. What are your thoughts on on the view that autistic people primarily require intervention to present normal and conform? I would say that's not right. I don't think that is the right approach. I understand that perhaps lots of people think that's the right approach. You know, obviously it's not helpful to force people to go against their nature. One example would be something like forcing people to make eye contact. We've had enough autistic people tell us that, you know, when that has happened in the past, it's been distressing for them. It's been incredibly problematic. And it's gone against situations where, you know, it made it harder for them to learn or pay attention or things like that. I think we know now that that's not the right thing. It's continuing, I guess, to push on to think about what's a better way. You know, and I think there are changes gradually coming out where we have... I think a better understanding of support around autism needs to be a multifactorial. So it's not just thinking about changing that autistic person to be different, to be, or to appear to be non-autistic. It's acknowledging that sometimes some of the difficulties are two-way. So one of the understandings around autism has been that, yes, in some situations, autistic people find it harder to understand the thinking and feeling of non-autistic people. And that's been quite a dominant model, that idea about theory of mind. But perhaps over the last three or four years, increasingly, because of autistic researchers, we're realizing that this is a two-way street. Non-autistic people also struggle to understand how autistic people think and feel. This is called the devil empathy problem. And I think, you know, increasingly, if we can realize that autism doesn't exist in a, in a vacuum, it is an interaction of, often between autistic people and non-autistic people, and thus any form of solution has to happen both ways. You have to find a way to meet in the middle in in some way. I think some areas are not about normalization, for example, about communication. I think ideally, if we have people who struggle to speak or struggle to communicate, hopefully we're in a position now where goals are, whatever way suits you, we'll find a communication that gets your important messages across. I'm hoping the more, you know, when I look around thinking about communication over there, we're not trying to force people to use speech. We're not trying to force people into into sort of just typical ways. I think there are areas where people acknowledge that communication can happen in multiple forms and, and, and that's fine. The other thing I think is really 
is just keeping acknowledged that social model that we need to keep thinking about changing the world around autistic people because some of us maybe don't notice the problems behind the bright lights or the bustle or the touch here or there, that some of these things, they may not be understood by non-autistic people, but they can be incredibly problematic. And I'm hoping that, again, more and more people will see there is something that they can do. They can, you know, if they're at work, they can turn a light down or they can turn off that music that just blends on in the background. Everybody can contribute towards creating a world that includes and respects autistic people as part of that world. And I think, too, it's mutually beneficial. A lot of normal neurotypical people get off-put by seven different songs playing in, 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 <laughs> yes. in a shopping yes. centre. Yes. So I think people have to look at it, take a step back and look at it like that. And yes. Hopefully, too, you know, podcasts like this and me always being brutally honest will also help. I certainly hope we can do our our small bit. Now, with regards to fully entrenching this strengths-based approach for use across all the fields, like you've spoken about medical, education, employment, how can we achieve that? What do we need to do going forward? Look, I think ultimately one key strategy is to include more autistic people at every level of decision-making. So perhaps in the next revision of DSM, there is autistic people contributing directly to how autism is represented in that situation. In our own organization, we haven't had a lot of autistic people right through the organization as employees or people making strategic decisions about what our organization sees as a priority or how we deliver our services. But it's changing significantly and has changed significantly and will continue to change because we realize that partnering with autistic people will help us really get better at providing autistic services to autistic people to understand autism better and to gel better with that autistic community. So I think organizations need to start thinking and and saying, well, how do we include people? How do we partner with people so that we can make sure that we are using an approach that is strengths-based and respectful? For me, the more I kind of explore my life, the more I think there's a little niche there of me and someone being able to tell corporations the benefits of hiring autistic people and and I don't think it's an exploitation thing. I just think that there's things about autistic people that are really beneficial to to corporations. And and yes. I think if it's if yep. it's done the right way, you know, the wrong way, then I'll just melt down or shut down. And HR will think I'm just a normal person who's just bad with people, you know. Yes. And and the right way, they'll go, wow, you know, this this is amazing. This kind of experience. So I think there really is some great upside if we can just start to convey the message. And sure, I mean, give, give me a call, corporations. I'm happy to sit on your board. No worries. Uh, but do, do, do you agree yeah. with what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there is a danger that inclusion could be tokenistic. It could just drop Orion into a company and then let you drown. You have to actually do it in a meaningful way yeah. to, to put the right kind of supports in and, and has to be systematic as well. And I think added to that, this sort of stuff we're talking about, thinking about strengths, thinking about having people listen more to autistic people, isn't only that group of people who, like you, can, can actually express yourselves really clearly and really easily. It's actually the, the, you know, the full kind of constellation of autistic people, whether you can speak or not. I think it's trying to include people more and more in every sense. And hopefully, again, that will allow people to build that bridge of empathy to to keep thinking about building on the strengths and, and the interests that people have. For the record, Tom, uh, the person to reprimand for going too long is yourself, executive producer. It's your fault. So, uh, but no, seriously, though, thank you so much for your time, Tom, and thank you for the opportunity. It's been great chatting with you, and I can't wait to do it again soon. Thanks, Orion. My guest was clinical psychologist and Aspect Practice National Manager, Dr. Tom Tutton. A different brilliant. 
with Orion Kelly. No two autistic people are the same. An Aspect podcast focusing on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Thank you so much for listening to A Different Brilliant. I appreciate it and I hope this episode has inspired, informed and entertained you. And if the episode has resonated with you, well, please share it with your family and friends so we can reach more people. And if you'd like to continue the conversation, just like the Aspect page on Facebook or visit autismspectrum.org.au. You're also welcome to send me a message via my website, orionkelly.com.au. A Different Brilliant is an Aspect podcast focusing on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Executive producers are Lisa Cassidy and Dr. Tom Tutton. I'm Orion Kelly and I look forward to celebrating the neurodiversity of autistic people and providing a voice for the autistic community on the next episode of A Different Brilliant. Thanks for listening to A Different Brilliant with Orion Kelly. An aspect podcast on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Our door is open anytime. So like the Aspect page on Facebook or visit autismspectrum.org.au. My aim, make the world a better place for autistic people.